I also saw the D&D movie last week, which was uh, very entertaining. I really I really liked it. And of course, being a D&D nerd, it was so fun to be like, I know that spell. I know that monster. I know that spell. <laughs> and like, just in my mind, going through all of the things and like seeing it represented in a in a 3D, like really realistic way was just very fascinating. I loved it. Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water, one podcast. I'm Bob Crossan, Editorial Director for the Endeavor Water Group. And I'm Katie Johns, Editor-in-Chief of Stormwater Solutions and Water Quality Products. In this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we touch on the Healthy Drinking Water Affordability Act, as well as funding that has been appropriated for the Clean Water and Drinking Water State Revolving Funds. Finally, we are including two interviews in this episode, one with Walt Marlowe, Executive Director for the Water Environment Federation, and another with Chris Moody of the American Waterworks Association. These two interviews share both WEF and AWWA's thoughts on the EPA's PFAS MCL goals and measurements. But first, a little bit of news. I'll start with the drinking water and clean water state revolving funds. First, with the clean water side, the US EPA announced that more than $775 million has been appropriated for the clean water state revolving fund that will be accessible for states, tribes, and US territories. According to the EPA release, more than half of the funding will be available as grants or will have principal loan forgiveness, which was a stipulation and a requirement of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which is now referred to as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law by the US EPA. When combined with the Clean Water State Revolving Fund for fiscal year 2023, the funding will amount to more than $3.2 billion. And according to the appropriations chart, the five states with the greatest appropriations are New York with $83.6 million, California with $54 million, Ohio with $42.6 million, Texas with $34.6 million, Illinois with $34.2 million, and Michigan with $32 million. There are also two other states, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, that have been appropriated for $30 million each, and all others are below that. However, no state has an appropriation lower than $3.7 million in the Clean Water State Revolving Fund. As for the Drinking Water State Revolving Fund, the, a memo in early April referenced the, the base amount being $1.1 billion. The Drinking Water State Revolving Fund General Supplemental is $2.2 billion. Emerging contaminants is $800 million, and lead service line replacement is at $3 billion. So if you're calculating all that out, that's about $7 billion. When you add that with clean water, you got about $10 billion. Follows for the five-year, fifty billion dollar mark if you appropriate around the same amount every single year. So the money is truly starting to flow, and I expect that we will see quite a few projects getting lined up. Even though there is some concern still with the Build America, Buy America side of things and what that means for making sure that people comply and the manufacturers can comply with that. However, the money is moving. Uh, the appropriations are out there. It's just a matter of making sure that they can be fully approved so that they can actually be distributed. Awesome. Thank you, Bob. And then a little bit of news before our interviews. Um, in March, both members of the House of Representatives and the Senate introduced versions of the identical versions of the Healthy Drinking Water Affordability Act. This legislation would offer federal grants for water quality testing and certified treatment technology in rural and underserved communities and would authorize a new U.S. Department of Agricultural grant program to cover the cost of water quality testing and the purchase, installation, and maintenance of POU and POE water 
filtration systems that are certified to address health-based contaminants in drinking water. Um, this bill is, um, you know, still being considered, so we'll be sure to update as we hear. But for now, this is this is where things stand. Well, it's interesting to see that there's movement on kind of every area of the water sector. It's not just the the funding for clean water and drinking water state revolving funds. It's not just stormwater funding, which you talked about last month. It's also the point of use and point of entry market where customers and residents are trying to get point of use and point of entry filtration under in their homes or under their sink. There's a lot of people on groundwater wells in the United States. And if they're not on a centralized water service, these things are really important to them too. And having some type of affordability to allow for them to get these types of things is I think a good thing overall because it raises the raises like the floor basically of living in the United States so yeah absolutely and in one of the press releases about this act it it said that nearly 43 million households primarily in rural communities rely exclusively on groundwater delivered through private wells so I mean this would this would be huge for for those populations yeah I think a lot of people just really don't understand the the volume of people who are on private water wells in this country still. It's really, it's a really big number. 43 million, you said? That's crazy. Yeah, that's what this this press release says, so. Wow, yeah. Well, why don't we move on to our interviews now? We will start first with Walt Marlow for the Water Environment Federation. Hello, everyone. I am Katie Johns with Talking Underwater, and today I am joined by Walt Marlowe, Executive Director of the Water Environment Federation. Uh, today we're going to dive into the EPA's PFAS MCLs proposal. Um, so, Walt, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, Katie. Good to be with you. Of course. So, like I said, we're kind of talking about all things PFAS MCLs. So, to start, what are WEF's initial thoughts on these MCLs? Uh, well, you know, initially... WEF's pleased to see EPA moving in this direction. Uh, you know, at our core, uh, WEF was founded in 1928, so we have a, almost a hundred year history of protecting public health. And a regulation like this is squarely aimed at protecting public health. And that's really the core mission of everybody who works in the water sector. Yeah, absolutely. And so what do you see as some of the pros and cons, right? Because we've been seeing some, you know, benefits and, and negativity in both ways. So what do you see as pros and cons right now? Sure. Uh, well, you know, first of all, I guess, uh, you know, WEF really endorses the uh, what EPA has stated its approach toward PFAS is going to be. Mm -hmm. You know, they're looking at considering the life cycle of PFAS. Uh, they want to get upstream of the problem, uh, which is really, really important to people in the water community. We're receivers of PFAS or transmitters. We're not the generators or, you know, the primary users of PFAS. Uh, you know, EPA has also talked about holding polluters accountable in this process. Again, uh, water utilities are not the people generating this. So uh, it's important that we try to you know, get to the source of the problem and stop the problem at the source. Uh, EPA has also talked about ensuring uh, they're making science-based decisions mm -hmm. uh, around PFAS which is really critical to us. Uh, and then they also, uh, you know, as part of this administration's environmental and social justice push, uh, they really want to prioritize the protection of disadvantaged communities. Sure. So all those pieces of the puzzle 
you know, are definitely uh, good things from West West's perspective. You know, on the downside, uh, we want to make sure that we do have technologies in place to be able to enable this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we want to make sure uh, that there are funds available to do this. Uh, again, uh, you know, because water utilities are receivers of this, and our ratepayers are the ones that are responsible uh, in the end for putting in the technology that has an effect on cleaning this up. Uh, we don't want to burden those ratepayers for pollution that they did not cause. Uh, and then, of course, as we implement these decisions, we want to make sure that we're not having unintended consequences. Uh, you know, uh, we, we don't want to impact the ability of utilities to function. Uh, we worry about, you know, are there any other spillover economic uh, impacts? So, uh, you know, there are some downsides, too. And then, of course, uh, implementation is going to take time sure. uh, to make sure these are sound decisions. Uh, it's going to have to have all the stakeholders involved and really take advantage of the best information that's out there right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that WEF, um, as an organization, released a statement, as other associations did. And in WEF's statement, it was said that the regulation could affect water resource recovery facilities, effluent management facilities that formally reuse their effluent, and other facilities that release effluent into waters that serve as drinking water sources downstream. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, well, you know, uh, these MCLs are primarily aimed at drinking water right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, uh, wastewater utilities, as we process the water, uh, take out the biosolids and return uh, the effluent to the environment. Uh, you know, there's PFAS there, right? We know from all these studies, PFAS is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in our bloodstreams right now. It's in the dust in our houses. Uh, it's in water. Uh, so as uh, wastewater utilities are dealing with this situation, and we know that regulations are going to come to the wastewater side of the house as well as the drinking water house, we don't want it to impact our ability uh, you know, to meet our operating requirements under the Clean Water Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will, we want to still be able to make beneficial use of biosolids and other materials that we're able to take out of the wastewater stream. And of course, after the water's treated, we have to put it somewhere. Uh, And uh, if we're putting it back into rivers and streams, very often we're putting it back into a cleaner state than we actually received it. Uh, But still those rivers flow downstream, they flow to other places. And the circular nature of water means that it's all very likely that somebody else is using that water downstream. And, uh, you know, we don't want to impact the ability for our utilities to actually process this water, you know, and, and do the beneficial things that we do with it. Yeah, absolutely. And that I know in our note earlier, you touched on the, the science side of things, too. Um, and so in regards to the measurements, which are pretty tiny in, the, in these goals, what what does WEF think about that? And what is WEF hearing, um, you know, from from these measurements that are, you know, who they're going to impact? Yeah, I, I mean, these are basically setting zero levels. Mm-hmm. I mean, four parts per trillion is, is uh, it's, it's extremely uh, small. Yeah. In fact, uh, you know, we're not even sure that we all have accepted methods to actually to right. be able to detect down to that level, which is a big problem right off the start. How can you be assured whether or not you're in compliance if we don't have the scientific means to actually reliably test on this and then actually have uh, you know sufficient lab space to do the testing and have sufficient lab technicians trained to actually do this mm-hmm. testing. So 
Uh, sometimes we forget about all that back-end stuff that has to be in place to effectively uh, put in a regulation. Uh, but hopefully that'll all get discussed uh, you know, as as uh, EPA works on finalizing this rule during during the rest of the year. Uh, and there was another point in there, but I have to admit I lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, no, you really answered. I asked kind of what what you had WEF heard anything, you know, from those in the industry about how they were feeling about the measurements and goals. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, the technologies are starting to develop on how we can effectively destroy PFAS, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because that's a big concern, because even if we take it out of the water stream uh, and then we have it sitting over in a pile somewhere else, what do we do with that pile? Right. Landfills are increasingly are not wanting it. We don't want to incinerate it and create air pollution. Uh, so we still have some technological challenges on how we're going to actually destroy some of this PFAS because it rightfully goes by the name Forever Chemicals. It's yeah. difficult, right? Right. Uh, yeah. And you touched on something in your answer too that I wanted to bring up, which is the training, right, required on the on the end of utility operators. So, what are your thoughts on this? Because chances are utilities will need advanced treatment, which means you need to be licensed to operate some equipment and move from grade B to grade A. So, what do you see happening in regards to that? Yeah, that's a big challenge. Uh, you know, WEF has spent about 18 months uh, looking at the industry and coming up with a new strategic plan last year that we rolled out around the time of WEFTEC. And one of the three key challenges in there is workforce development for our industry. Uh, for a number of years, we've been talking about, you know, the gray tsunami that's coming to the industry. Uh, it's here. I'm part of it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, and we need to have a workforce that's well-trained, that's representative of the communities that our utilities serve. Uh, and that is a huge challenge. And then to add PFAS on top of that, where we're going to require uh, additional training uh, that requires resources, that probably requires additional bodies. Uh, you know, the industry is going to be uh, struggling uh, to meet the demand for these things. Absolutely. And chances are operators will have to have a higher licensing grade as well. So does WEF have any plans to try and tackle that or, you know, create any resources in that regard? Well, you know, we're always about education for our operators and trying to provide uh, opportunities for them to increase their knowledge, increase their skills. Uh, We work in conjunction with Water Professionals International, which used to be the Associated Boards of Certification uh, around the training and testing uh, for operators. Uh, ideally, we'd love to see reciprocity uh, for operators around the U.S., similar to engineers or architects, but we know that's a long-term uh, challenge uh, to get states to agree on common standards uh, because they're concerned about protecting their communities, and I understand their their desire to oversee that kind of licensing, uh, but I think there's plenty of space here to come to some standard uh, common standards uh, that will, you know, help help the education side because it'll be standardized mm-hmm. and help the workforce pool uh, because it'll be standardized. Uh, but WEF will definitely be there uh, with the education and training uh, that our operator workforce needs. Great. Well, well, those were my questions for you. And of course, I know we could talk about this for hours and hours probably, <laughs> but I don't want to take up too much of your time. But are there any final thoughts you want to share before I let you go? No, I think I just want to emphasize, uh, you know, that we 
this is a big problem and, and EPA needs to take all the different tools in its toolbox and, and try to apply them. Uh, but uh, we really need to stop PFAS at the source. Uh, you know, some days I feel like uh, there's a bunch of arsons running around, setting the buildings on fire and we're the fire department. And, sure. you know, sometimes we want to buy more, more fire engines, but what we should do is stop the arsonists out there. Uh, so if we can stop uh, PFAS getting into the environment, I think we'll all be uh, a lot better off and the challenges that we have to uh, face will get a little bit smaller for us all. But uh, I'm very optimistic that, that we'll solve this challenge and continue to protect the public health. That's great. Well, Walt, thank you so much for kind of diving into, the, into this with me. I know it's complicated and tricky and there's a lot of thoughts running around, so I appreciate you taking the time and, and sharing your insight. Thanks. Pleasure talking with you today. Yeah, thank you. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Thanks so much for your time with that interview, Walt. I really appreciated it and appreciated you sharing all of WEF's insight. Um, and now we will hear from Chris Moody of AWWA. So welcome to Talking Underwater. I'm Bob Crossan, Editorial Director for the Endeavor Business Media's Water Group. I'm joined today by Chris Moody. He is the Regulatory Technical Manager for American Waterworks Association. Big news with this PFAS MCL proposal. Everyone's been talking about it. I know there's a lot of a lot of documentation that EPA has even been putting out there. We were talking just before the call, having over like 1,200 <laughs> documents to, to work through, and it's a, a lot to to worry about. Um, but thank you so much for being here and talking about this issue and giving us kind of an, a feel for what AWWA is thinking and what your members are, are coming to you with on the on this too. So I appreciate you taking our time to, to chat about this really important issue. So I, I guess let's start first there with your members. What are some of the things you're hearing from members when it comes to this? Are, are they uh, happy with it? Are they scared of it? What is kind of the general feel that you're getting from folks? Yeah, I mean, I think we've had a, a mixed response from members. You know, I think there's a lot of folks that were were fairly um, unsurprised by the, you know, particularly the PFO and PFOS numbers. We've we've been hearing and kind of suspecting for the last year that it would be, you know, definitely lower than the health advisory from 2016. Uh, we've seen a lot of state action that has been in the, you know, the the single digit and low double digit numbers. So. You know, I think that's an area that wasn't a huge surprise, although I think there was some surprise about it being at four versus five or six. Um, the the introduction of the additional PFAS, you know, again, the regulatory determination from a couple of years ago kind of put that on the table. So we we definitely were expecting to see some additional compounds, particularly um, a mixture of short chain and long chain, but I think the the biggest surprise was the hazard mix approach. You know, we we saw it a little bit a couple of years ago and some documents, but you know, didn't really ever seem like it was going to necessarily be brought in as a as a you know a standard. And so I, I think that's probably where we're seeing the biggest surprise coming from folks. Um, you know, but I, I do think we still have a lot of folks that are pretty eager that there is a proposal on the table because, you know, they've been waiting and they'd like to be able to have the opportunity to respond to a final rule and reintroduce that level of public trust that, you know, they are, they are proactive with PFAS. They do want to protect public health. Um, and 
you know, they will try to do that as best they can. So, you know, we, we've heard a lot of mixed, mixed feelings on it, but you know, that's, that's the high level kind of reactions we've heard so far. Yeah. Well, I mean, getting to that, you mentioned the hazard index. That certainly seemed to be the biggest surprise. Is that what one of the areas that you consider to be one of the bigger challenges of 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 this particular proposal, or is it more multifaceted than that? I, I definitely think the hazard index will be a pretty big area um, to get over because just just trying to wrap your head around it, you know, the calculation looks a little bit daunting when you look at it, you know, on, on paper, but at the end of the day, it's the sum of four different fractions. And, you know, the, the math isn't very complicated, but the what the math means is the bigger challenge for utilities, you know, how, how do you communicate what that risk level is? You know, I, I've talked a couple times with folks about, you know, the challenges of having health advisories that kind of put a marker down for no adverse health effects. But then if you're below all those health advisories or in the MCLGs, then you could still be out of compliance with the rule because of this assumption of, of adding all these things together. So, you know, how you communicate with that hazard index, if it does become a final part of the rule, um, could certainly pose a challenge for a lot of utilities. Um, I, I think another area we, we plan on focusing on for the rule is, is just the costs uh, for utilities to comply. You know, we've done some work with um, a contractor to better understand the costs of compliance and, and what goes into treatment and, you know, getting a building in place, getting the permitting, getting the contractor lined up, all those different costs that kind of build up together and, and require utility to take action. Um, you know, we, we, we definitely agree that costs shouldn't, you know, necessarily be, a, you know, something that prevents you from taking public health protection. But at the end of the day, you know, all of these systems are trying to balance out how they spend money and put investment into the infrastructure. And so whatever EPA does finalize, we want to make sure and our members want to be, you know, reassured that it's a good investment to make based on what we're going to get back in return for our communities. So that if we do have to divert resources from one place to another, um, we're doing so in a manner that, you know, is defendable and follows the best available science. Yeah, the the financial side was really interesting because EPA had its own estimates that were out there. But given other studies that even AWWA and I know Black and Veatch was part of one as well of kind of understanding the true cost of this problem seemed to be way, way bigger number than what EPA was expecting. So I thought that was an interesting, uh, seemed like an interesting disconnect between the folks who are in working in the industry and the people who are trying to regulate it as well. So, so to answer that, you know, I, there's definitely a disconnect between the numbers at this point. And that's, that's one of the areas that we, you know, we certainly want to work with EPA and help them, you know, improve their model and see how our model and, and Black and Beach's model can be improved upon. Um, at the end of the day, as long as, you know, what, what gets into the final rule represents the best available science. And, you know, I think a lot of our concern at, at this onset is that, you know, our, our sector has seen a lot of cost increases for things as, as workforce shortages happen, supply chain challenges happen. Um, you know, with, with, with all of these systems that are going to have to respond to this rule, starting to install GAC and ion exchange systems, and maybe even membrane filtration systems, you know, we're going to put even more stress on, on the existing construction and, you know, engineering workforce as well as utility workforce. And so I, I definitely think there's, you know, some, some significant cost multipliers that are going to start coming into the conversation um, for this particular set of standards. 
Yeah, not to mention just adding on the whole um, – adding on inflation to that. We've seen that just over the past couple of years, just people who had planned on projects and seeing their inflation increasing their costs too. Um, what 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 are some resources that AWWA is, has available now, and are there certain resources you're working to put together for your members uh, to talk about this MCL and kind of get them informed? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of resources to date um, prior to the rule that that'll be useful moving forward. Um, you know, the most recent one is, is we did some work with the Water Research Foundation to to move forward a risk communication guide um, in response to. PFAS monitoring data under under the fifth unregulated contaminant monitoring rule. We've also got trending in an instant that was developed a few years ago. Um, you know, and the two pieces there are you know risk communication for PFAS is a big challenge. Um, mm-hmm. Right now we're we're in a state where UCMR five is is ongoing and we're getting data coming in for twenty nine compounds. So six of those are you know being regulated or, or proposed to be regulated. And folks are going to have to figure out how to navigate risk communication with their members, not only for those six compounds that are, you know, with proposed regulations now, but those other 23 compounds that we don't have any data for. Um, uh, AWA also has a source water evaluation guide. And so, you know, if you read through the proposal, treatment is obviously kind of the first mitigation step that comes to mind for most folks and, and probably will be what most folks will have to do if they have an MCL um, exceedance, but, you know, there are other options on the table um, there, you know, folks can always try to install a new well or do an interconnect or maybe just use some source water evaluation and better understand what the sources of PFAS are. And that could potentially alleviate some of the PFAS loading into their watershed. And so, you know, the source water evaluation guide is probably a good point to start, especially if you're trying to reevaluate where you could put a well at. You might find that, you know, moving your well a little bit here and there maybe gets you out of that contamination area. Um, we've also got a treatment selection guide. So kind of shifting over to the treatment side, you know, we had some work done a few years ago that tries to really lay out all of the different treatment technologies that are available. So granular activated carbon, ion exchange, and particularly reverse osmosis for PFAS and really walks through all the different considerations you have to make for those. So, you know, water quality considerations, you know, it's all advanced treatment. And so it's not necessarily a plug and play kind of situation. You gotta, you gotta really do some, you know, bench scale and pilot testing on these to make sure you're understanding your water quality, the treatment you're installing and and what the longevity of that treatment is going to be. Um, and then moving forward, we'll, we'll you know, we're, we're going to be doing a, a webinar in April, kind of walking through everything in the rule and what the impacts to water systems look like. We'll be putting together, um, you know, down the road, we'll have an e-learning module put together kind of on PFAS from start to finish. So, mm. you know, walking through what are PFAS, you know, all the basics you get into, but then really diving into, you know, what EPA is doing, what the treatment technologies are, what the rule is what the modern requirements are, everything kind of A to Z. So uh, that'll be pretty exciting once we can get that out the door. Yeah. I feel like the educational resources are going to be really important, especially with advanced treatment. There, there might be some systems that are going to have to graduate up to that, like add that into something. And then you have to, you're talking about licensing changes too. You need people to grade up too. So um, making sure that there's good educational resources, I think is going to be really critical for this too. 
Absolutely. And, and that piece you just touched on there that we hadn't mentioned yet was that licensing piece. And, you know, we're still kind of exploring how, how much of an extent this will have, but, or how much of an impact this will have, but, you know, to the extent that we're installing advanced treatment, some of these systems are going to push systems into some of these treatment facilities will push systems into having to have, you know, a higher level of operator certification, which could potentially have some issues down the road as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a multifaceted issue issue to tackle. So um, I guess my last question here was just getting a feel for what you guys are doing in, in D.C. on this. Uh, who are you engaging in Washington, D.C. on the PFAS MCL proposal? Who are you talking to? And um, what, what what are kind of the next steps for AWWA? Yeah, so, I mean, we're right now we're in the public comment period. So we've got, you know, unless we get an extension of, of how long we can comment, we've got 60 I think we, we managed to scrape by with 62 days, uh, which gets me, you know, gets all of us that are commenting on the rule just past Memorial Day to have time to comment. So hopefully we'll all shoot for the 58, 58 day mark and get them in before Memorial Day. <laughs> but in the, in, you know, in the meantime, the next, you know, basically two months, I, you know, there's going to be a lot of engagement with our members. We're really trying to, with this particular comment, um, comment development process, engage our members, engage the sections that we have. So we've got sections from all across the U.S., members from all across the U.S. Our members represent consultants, utilities, um, the manufacturing folks, suppliers. So trying to disengage every aspect of AWA membership to better understand what, you know, what, what's happening on the, at the, in the field level, what's happening at the petitioner level, because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm in D.C., you know, I'm not out operating a treatment system. I don't understand all the nuances that some of the operators or the consultants have to deal with. And so trying to pull as much of that in there to help EPA understand that same issue because they're in the same position. They're not they're not out there every day doing water treatment like all of our members are. And so trying to bring that perspective in as much as possible and help them understand that so that they can better improve the rule. That's the goal for the next two months. Just try to get as much of that into a comment letter as we can and hopes that EPA can finalize a rule that everyone's happy with. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Chris. I really appreciate you taking the time and chatting with us about this and digging a little bit into the into the, the whole issue and really appreciate your expertise on the matter. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Chris, for taking the time to speak with me. I know that we had some tight timing to get that interview in, and I, I appreciate you being able to squeeze me in to get, get all that information out there and to get the insights from American Water Works Association on what this means for utilities and for people around the country. So thanks so much. Um, on to housekeeping. Let's start with WQP. Katie, you've got uh, Faces of the Industry. Yeah, so our nominations are still open for this year's WQP Young Pros and Industry Icon. You can make your nominations at wqpmag.com slash faces hyphen industry. Um, go ahead and get those in by the end of this month, April. Um, and then I'll just jump right into Stormwater Solutions. So um, later this year, as we've mentioned, we are hosting StormCon in Dallas from August 29th to 31st. And exclusive to this podcast, we have a 10% registration discount. Visit bit.ly slash stormconreg2023 and use the code ONEWATER10 in all caps to get 10% off your registration. This code does expire on April 30th, so be sure to use it as soon as possible. And Bob, what about for wastewater? 
Yeah, for WWD, I just want to plug our YouTube channel again, youtube.com slash at Wastewater Digest. While you're there, please hit the subscribe button. We're posting a ton of videos over the course of this month. I had several interviews from the Water Reuse Symposium back in March, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. We'll have a couple on WWD. We'll also have a few on the Waterworld website, so make sure to check out there, too. And we're also gearing up already for AWWA Ace, so if you are if you are presenting or you know of some presenters there, please get in touch with us. We would love to schedule a video interview with you at the conference. I will also note that the rest of this month, I will be traveling to a couple different shows. I'll be at Texas Water for the AWWA section down there. I'll be at our own Municipal Wastewater Summit. And then I will also be at Water Week in Washington. So I'm looking forward to learning more about the regulatory things that are going on, what's happening on the Hill, and how that's going to inform and shape the way that we look at water for the rest of 2023. Awesome. So with that, don't forget to like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also reach us at talkingunderwater at endeavorb2b.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at TUW Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.